This episode is brought to you by Bubs Naturals, and one of the most profound new supplements I've added to my own diet is collagen. And Bubs provides the only collagen that is not only NSF certified, but also Whole30 certified. Now, when we think of collagen, you might think of beauty products, but when ingested, collagen not only positively affects skin, nails, and hair, but also joint and gut health, something that I witnessed personally within myself. Now, I'm also a huge fan of altruistic business, and Bubs was founded out of tragedy. Glenn Bub Doherty was one of the two Navy SEALs killed in Benghazi, and his friends Sean and TJ founded this company to not only create great nutritional products, but also take 10% of the proceeds and donate them to charity. So they are offering you, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, 20% off your first purchase if you use the code SHIELD at bubsnaturals.com. And if you want to hear more about the inception of Bubs and Glenn's powerful story, listen to episode 558 of Behind the Shield podcast with Sean Lake. This episode is sponsored by 511, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why don't I have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, You'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. This episode is brought to you by Thorn, and I have some incredible news for any of you that are in the military, first responder, or medical professions. In an effort to give back, Thorn is now offering you an ongoing 35% off each and every one of your purchases of their incredible nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is the official supplement of CrossFit, the UFC, the Mayo Clinic, the Human Performance Project, and multiple special operations organizations. 
I myself have used them for several years and that is why I brought them on as a sponsor. Some of my favorite products they have are their multivitamin elite, their whey protein, the super EPA, and then most recently, Cinequil. As a firefighter, a stuntman, and a martial artist, I've had my share of brain trauma and sleep deprivation, and Cinequil is their latest brain health supplement. Now, to qualify for the 35% off, go to thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Click on sign in and then create a new account. You will see the opportunity to register as a first responder or member of military. When you click on that, it will take you through verification with GovX. You'll simply choose a profession, provide one piece of documentation, and then you are verified for life. From that point onwards, you will continue to receive 35% off through Thorn. Now, for those of you who don't qualify, there is still the 10% off using the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, for a one-time purchase. Now, to learn more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of the Behind the Shield podcast with Joel Totoro and Wes Barnett. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Ray Murphy. Now, Ray is a Marine veteran who served during Desert Storm, a skydiver and base jumper, a canine trainer, and the founder of Warriors Healing Network. So we discuss a host of topics from his journey into the military to his powerful mental health story and everything in between. Before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback and leave a rating. Every five star rating truly does elevate this podcast, making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library for you, planet Earth. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Ray Murphy. Enjoy. Well, Ray, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time to come on the Behind the Shield podcast today. Yeah, I appreciate you having me. I'm truly honored, um, especially given the, the guest list, you, your past guest list. Uh, you've got amazing amount of uh, men and women out there that have really poured their hearts out to the veteran and first responder community. So for me to be able to be a part of that, it just it's just a special thing. So I really appreciate it. Yeah, well, no, well, thank you. And, I'm, and as people will hear with your story, it's yet another, you know, very powerful human story that people need to hear. So very, very opening question. Where on planet Earth are we finding you today? I'm weathering a uh, pretty good thunderstorm out here outside of Charleston, South Carolina right now. Beautiful. So a little bit further north from myself. So I'd love to start at the very beginning of your timeline then. So tell me where you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Sure. Um, Well, I grew up outside of Chicago. Um, I was born in Hinsdale, Illinois, but I grew up in Naperville. Um, I have one other brother, younger brother. Um, I wouldn't say I had the best childhood. You know, a lot of people have the same story. I, I don't think it really set in that, you know, some of these earlier experiences in life probably did affect me later on. And I just put them so far away that I don't even think about it. Um, 
you know, there was some violence in the household. Um, my dad was pretty abusive, you know, to me and to my, my mom and that type of stuff. I even had, I was thrown down at one point and broke a foot when I think it was an elementary school by my father. And I was told to lie and say that I fell. So that's something that I had to actually think about to remember. It was so buried in there. Um, as I grew up, you know, and I, you know, came up into high school, you know, I became a scrappy young punk, you know, back in the day, but I also didn't have to take his shit anymore. So I basically just started doing what I wanted to do, um, which is just a whole hell of a lot of partying back in the day and didn't really listen to my parents. And I was on a road to nowhere, um, for sure. If you remember all those movies back in the day, like 16 Candles and uh, Breakfast Club and all this stuff, that's basically where I grew up in the same time frame, too. So if somebody breathed the word party, it looked like Jake Ryan's house, you know, 3,000 kids outside at a keg party. So, and ironically enough, you know, we, I'm sure we'll talk about the canine stuff later, but I actually got chased down by a police canine from a keg party who did not bite me, <laughs> which... I found out years later it was an accidental deployment. The cop just accidentally dropped the leash and the thing chased after me when you're running from a teenage keg party. Uh, I'm sure you can imagine what that would amount to these days, but yeah. So that's what kind of led me to do something on my own for myself because I essentially was kicked out of the house right out of high school um, and spent about eight months of my life just bouncing from couch to couch, just homeless, you know, going nowhere. So I, I took life into my own hands and uh, enlisted in the Marine Corps because I wanted to do something with myself. So just kind of going back for a second, when you look back now with this, you know, this incredible life that you've had, and obviously now these kind of uh, new mental health and psychedelic experiences, are there elements of what you heard of your father's upbringing that led him to be that abusive dad in the first place? And it's a lot of time under the bridge, so it's hard to tell. Um, what I keep hearing, though, and this is something fairly new, you know, I, I keep hearing this, your formative years up to about seven years old. Um, if you experience trauma in that window, it seems like that seems to be the the one that sticks with you for a while. And, and I had a lot of shit go on before I was seven years old. Um, and again, I, this isn't stuff that bothers me on a daily basis. It's just stuff I was kind of forced to reckon with when I was dealing with PTSD as a whole. Um, it was the later traumas that kind of caused it to crack the egg, if you will. But um, I had to kind of think of, of the whole picture, which kind of brought up those things back in the day. So I think that's, that's definitely part of the puzzle that I'm trying to put back together. But as far as him himself, has he ever told you any of the things about his own childhood or upbringing that maybe created that behavior mechanism in the first place? Yeah, honestly, I think it repeated itself. If I remember correctly, I think his dad was pretty abusive, too. You know, I've lost contact with both of my parents long ago. Um, but if I remember correctly, you know, he was kind of repeating a cycle. Um, there was kind of violence and unrest in his household as he grew up. Um, so I think it just carried down the line. and unfortunately. You know, I was a recipient of it. Now, what about sports? Did you have any outlets while you were going through this? A lot of times, you know, people find solace in mentorship or, or at least a sporting outlet. Yeah, I played football. Um, I even joined the wrestling team after I was given the choice of going joining the wrestling team or going to Saturday detentions for putting a tack on a te teacher's chair. <laughs> so I chose wrestling. 
Um, again, this is where when I was in high school and when things started to go a little bit awry as far as behavior is concerned. Now, what about career aspirations? You, you said you enlisted in the military. When you were a little bit younger during high school, were you dreaming of the military or was there something else in your mind? Honestly, the military thing didn't come about till I was bouncing around from people's couches. Um, a friend of mine who's also on our board for our, our 501c3 uh, joined the Marines and he came back and uh, he was pretty squared away. Um, it looked like he was taking charge of his own life. And I, I looked at that. And I'm like, listen, I've got to do something. And this is it. You know, there's no way I'm going to go to college on my own. Um, you know, working shitty construction jobs and all that type of stuff wasn't going to cut it. So um, I basically just decided enough of this and just enlisted on my own. So how did the the kind of, I guess, the toughness, even though it's coming from a negative route from your upbringing and also the sporting element, how did that factor into Marine Boot Camp and as you progressed through? Well, it gave me the confidence that I could basically handle anything. You know, I took control of my own life. I didn't make excuses for where I came from or what my background was or how shitty my childhood was. At that point, you know, the world was open to me to do whatever I want with it. Um, when I came out of the Marines, you know, I, I had the ability to go to college, you know, and I provided that for myself. Nobody else did. You know, I came out and I still had friends from high school who were still, you know, sucking off mom and dad's tit and, you know, they're on their seventh and eighth year of college still partying, right? I didn't have that luxury. It was, I had that one shot of getting a degree and that was it. And I, I, I made it happen myself. So I know when you were in the Marine Corps, that was when Desert Storm was going. Um, so talk to me about that. You know, what was your training like and then where did you find yourself and in, in what role? Yeah, so I was a machine gunner by, by trade in 0331. Um, but at the time, I was part of a scout sniper platoon. So with the 1st Battalion, 2nd Marines, I was with their state platoon. Um, basically, our mission out there in the desert would just be calling in airstrikes um, because we were out in the middle of nowhere in the open. Um, that being said, you know, I spent most of our time floating around on a, in a ship waiting for stuff to happen. You know, we had several missions to do all these fantastic landings, but the thing was over in a flash. So basically spent eight months just preparing for war. Um, didn't actually go to war. Um, and obviously you saw how it unfolded later in history, but that's, that's how it unfolded for me. So, you know, I, I did lose friends in the military um, later on, you know, the guys that stayed in and things like that. But the vast majority of my trauma, unlike a lot of your guests that you've had, did not come from my military experience. It came from after that. One of my guests about two months ago, I believe if I've got this right, I, I interview so many people, my brain gets a little scrambled sometimes, but I think he said he was either on a ship or uh, a submarine. But anyway, he was off the coast and that's where, where he was stationed. And I asked him about, you know, again, the, the, the war experience. And he said it was strange because it could have been war or peacetime from our actual intimate, you know, arena that we were in. You know, yes, we might have fired some shots across the bow, but apart from that, really, we were just on our vessel. So all we knew was that that surrounding. And it's something that you forget. Maybe it's in the sky, maybe it's in, on the ocean or in the ocean. Really, the ones that have the most acute experience are the men and women that are on the ground, forward deployed. But so many people are still at war and still part of that giant machine, but their experience is somewhat detached than a lot of the images that we see. For sure. Um, I mean, some of our training lights, uh, training that went on were was pretty impressive. I mean, we did the largest amphibious landing since Korea 
out there prior to the war starting 50 miles south of the Kuwaiti border to basically draw the Iraqis to make the first move. So we would be defending ourselves. Um, but to see that, that, you know, we went up in the air with, with helicopter sorties and, and tech helicopters flanking all, all of our sides and then fixed wing air jets coming in. You see the timing and the, I mean, everyone's seen that movie apocalypse now, now multiply that by like 50. Um, seeing that's the amount of force and the amount of coordination and a lot of stuff going on. It, it was incredible to be part of it and to see it. I mean, it gives you goosebumps. So, I mean, elements of what I experienced were, were cool, but like you talk to anyone else in the military, you know, a lot of stuff, every cool thing you do, you got 10 other shitty things you got to endure <laughs> to get there. It's like the fire service. Yeah. There's Absolutely. some amazing, amazing calls that we get, but there's a lot of, a uh, lot of not so amazing ones that you have to run to get to the good ones. Yep. <laughs> so what made you decide to transition out the the marines and then what did that lead you into sure well when i was in the marines you know i was in a scout sniper platoon i didn't actually get the opportunity to go to sniper school um they kept holding that over our heads as a you know build that we wanted to go for but you would have to extend our service or your service in with the platoon to uh actually go to the school because the rotations got screwed up with desert storm um, at that point in time, I did not want to make a career out of the military. You know, I was in for four years and I wanted to go to college and get on with life and kind of do that whole thing. So, um, looking back on it, I don't know. I mean, I, you know, I've got mixed feelings about being in the military and what I could have done. Um, because obviously I'm very, really enthralled with, you know, kind of the special forces aspect of what these guys are doing. Um, honestly, I don't think I had the maturity at the time to probably make it through those programs. But looking back, it would have been something I would have liked to have tried at some point. So up to this point, had you, you mentioned being chased by a police dog, but had you actually had any uh, canines yourself in your life, you know, just regular pets? Just regular pets. Um, the whole canine thing came way later in life. Um, and who knows, that's, that's, that's still a story that I laugh at because, you know, I've been on the receiving end of it, of a what I would call a failed deployment, which in my world, you know, that dog should have bit me, you know, otherwise he's not doing his job because that's specifically what we focus on uh, with our company, HRD, Police Canine. So when you transitioned out then, you talked about going to college, you know, where did you go and what did you study initially? Yeah, I went to uh, Illinois State University because they had a veteran scholarship fund. So they basically paid me to go to school. Um, I studied criminal justice sciences, thinking I wanted to be a cop. Um, this was until I realized, you know, they don't make any money. Um, and the job itself is, especially these days, is a disaster. I would never do what they do, knowing what I know about it now. Uh, back then, I probably would have, but I elected to you know, go after careers that could potentially make me money at the time. So what did you find yourself doing then? <laughs> horrible, horrible corporate jobs, uh, some of it IT related, um, until I finally got sick of it all. And we just, I just started becoming the serial entrepreneur. Um, you know, I started a CrossFit gym fairly early on. We were, I think we were like box number 560-something. So before it completely blew up all over the world, I had a CrossFit gym. Uh, my wife started a marketing company, and that, since then we've had multiple companies. And um, you know, I will never work for anybody else again. So I like to ask anyone who was in CrossFit, especially when they were in earlier, um, what was your first CrossFit workout slash experience? Oh God, it was the <laughs> one. 
what's it called? Damn, I forgot the damn name. It's uh, the 5, 10, 15, just pull-ups, push-ups, squats. Maybe. Yeah, I got smoked. You know, those those few reps and you think, oh, yeah, I can bust this out. Yeah, five in there, you're already sucking wind. You like realize like doing arm curls at Gold's Gym doesn't really do shit for you as far as actual fitness. <laughs> So what about so so walk me through from your first workout to what made you decide to actually start a box? Well, we've been doing it for quite a while, or for about a year and a half or so, and I was actually on a mountain climb you know, on Mount Rainier and uh, a failed mountain climb because we got turned around because of weather. But when we came down, I found out I got laid off my corporate job. At the time, I've been using CrossFit to train for the mountain climb and all that stuff. So I'm like, well, screw it. I'm just gonna open my own. You know, and we did. So we opened CrossFit Peachtree in uh, Atlanta. We were one of the first ones out of the gate to kind of do so. I think one, you know, reoccurring theme when it comes to that world is, and I hear this a lot, you know, you're either a trainer, you're either a coach, or you're a gym owner. But when you try and combine the two, that's where a lot of challenges happen, a lot of boxes fail. So what was your experience with the business side? Um. You're trying to differentiate yourself over a gym that makes this maybe two miles down the road because at the time it was kind of popping up all over the place. Um, I think we did a pretty good job, you know, just not knowing a damn thing about the business side of running a gym. But what I did find is you end up doing everything else besides actually training people, right? You're fixing the broken toilet. You're fixing the barbell that snapped in half. You're buying new equipment that's getting destroyed. So... You know, that was the downside. And we did see, you know, some really amazing transformation stories of people turning their lives around and that type of stuff. Uh, the community aspect from CrossFit, you know, of course, everyone calls it cultish. And to some degree, it was back then. It was a little weird. Um, people get really, really obsessed with uh, the numbers, you know, they're putting up there when you put it on a whiteboard and it's there for everyone to see. You know, you get people cutting corners on exercises and doing dumb shit like that. So, that part of it I didn't enjoy, but I did enjoy, you know, I guess just some of the people that we were around. We had some pretty amazing trainers that worked with us and we had a good time doing it. Yeah, that's one thing. I got into it in around 06 um, and, you know, watched quite the undulation of, of, you know, where it went. And obviously the the, the true north was always there, which is, you know... Um, do do these certain workouts and that's it and then have these rest days but obviously as the games came into it people got kind of swept away with that um but uh yeah i mean competing against other people was the best slash worst part of yeah. that philosophy because yeah absolutely if it motivates you to do good form and technique and push a little bit harder beautiful but i saw that too people walk in the door and they don't want to learn how to do strict pull-ups they want to do butterfly pull-ups and they want to do handstand walks looking like some crab with a back injury and you know it's like no that's not the way you do it and then that's when you end up with those crossfit fails videos whereas oh, yeah. the real you know philosophy and application was humility and and slowly learning these skills and building yourself up and competing against yourself and it was sad when those two things got separated for a while and we did see more injuries in the gyms yeah and i guess some of the ones that i remember fondly were those early days of doing some of those first hero workouts you know i've never done a workout that i had to actually think about somebody else's sacrifice especially to our country and those ones i you know, it just changed your motivation. You know, you're not in there just to, you know, screw around and do little bullshit movements. You're in there just to 
go as hard and hard as you can and not feel sorry for yourself. And, and I found those pretty enjoyable, in a sick way. Um, they definitely hurt. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, then what about the back end of that? What made you transition out of being an actual owner? Well, we didn't want to be in Atlanta. Um, we lived in Huntington Beach prior to that and then moved to Atlanta. We wanted to go back to California. And the only way to do that was to sell the gym, which we eventually did. And made our way back out to the West Coast, uh, went to San Francisco, which is obviously light years away from Atlanta. But we enjoyed California before it got weird. Put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> what the guy that introduced me to CrossFit trained at, um, I think it was CrossFit Marina in Huntington Beach. Um, okay. So I don't know if, yeah. if you're aware of that box, but yeah, that was that's my origin story. Is that he trained there and then he exposed it to me, and and that was it. But yeah, I think that was one of the very first ones that were open. Yep. All right. Well, then let's talk about flinging yourself out of planes and off cliffs. How did you get into sky slash base jumping? Uh, well, I started skydiving when I was in the Marines, but not for the Marines. I went home on leave one time, just did a tandem skydive. I'm like, holy crap, this is. This is it. This is what I want to do. Um, so I basically got myself certified in skydiving and um, started doing it. I became a static line instructor first. And then when I got out, I actually started working for uh, Skydive Chicago and I became a free fall instructor. Uh, I was involved with a lot of the early on large formation attempts. Um, in fact, I was multiple ones until we finally got at the time, which was a world record, but it was 246 people linked together in free fall. Um, I went down that road first, you know, and then believe it or not, skydiving actually got boring to me, <laughs> which I think it happens to a lot of people in that sport after a while. Uh, and base jumping is just sitting right there, you know, and, and back then it was definitely a renegade activity. It was not as accessible. We didn't have GoPros. We didn't have YouTube. Um, you didn't have Red Bull. It was just literally, it was, it was always that one seedy guy at the drop zone, you know, sitting off to the corner who's packing this base rig, which didn't look like anyone else's gear. And you'd look at it. So, Ooh, what's that all about? <laughs> you know, he just got done jumping off a building in the city the night before and things like that. And I thought that was so intriguing and cool. And of course I signed up to do it myself. <laughs> so. Now with it being kind of renegade, as you said, what was the tuition like back then? Cause that's always intriguing to me. Dukes is on the show who I know is, is a mutual friend. And now yep. he teaches it you know, intricately in, in his classes. But when it first happened, I mean, there must have been a pretty steep learning curve. Either you, you get better or you just fall to your death. Basically, that's what it was in the beginning, uh, especially for people like dudes. The Australians were known for going hard. Um, they call it kicking koalas. So when your parachute opens and your legs swing out, you know, that's a treetop level. They call it kicking koalas. <laughs> Um, but the bottom line, there wasn't a lot of avenues to learn it. You really had to find a mentor that was willing to kind of take you under their wing and um, not only show you how to get into the sites, how to pack your rig and all those type of things. And the gear wasn't as advanced back then either. A lot of it was modified skydiving gear. Um, and it was really trial and error. I mean, it was just people just doing things until somebody got hurt or killed and they realized this isn't the way to do it and they switched. So... You know, that's really how it ran back in the day before it it turned into a kind of full-blown sport with more visibility and things like that through the internet. Now, you talked about not getting, you know, not seeming like there was too much trauma from your military career. Obviously, there was some prior. It seems like a lot of the trauma that you did accumulate came from these sports. So talk to me about some of the people you lost. I know, I know especially that one rescue attempt that haunts you. Well... 
Yeah, I mean, I, get, I had to sit down one day and actually figure this out because I actually forgot about some of them. I mean, it got that bad that, you know, when you got a body count over 30 people in your life that have disappeared through this sport, um, you got to do some reassessing. You know, is this for me? Should I still be, you know, reaching into this bag of luck? Because I've done a lot in it. Um, the vast majority are probably base jumping related. Um, I was around a few other skydiving fatalities. And like the one you mentioned, um, when we built that, uh, that world record, the 246 person record, our, my team captain, her name is Sandy Wambach, got knocked out in free fall on a unsuccessful jump where the, the base of the formation uh, basically imploded on itself. So people are all over the sky, not where they were supposed to be. So when you break off and fly away so you could open your parachute safely, um, there was a midair collision and happened literally just to my right. I just saw it out of the corner of my eye and I saw her kind of spiraling down. Um, I instantly knew something was wrong. I couldn't tell what was wrong, but I just started to follow her instead of tracking away from the formation. Um, she was on her back, but with her arms just kind of flopping on her stomach and looking at the time, I thought she was trying to pull one of her emergency handles or something like that. But in retrospect, obviously, it makes sense. If she was knocked unconscious, she would just be kind of flopping around because of the, you know, she's flying, falling at terminal velocity. So I kind of hovered over for a period of time, and I was close to her, but I couldn't reach her. Um, and then when I kind of really determined what was going on, and I knew I had to do something, I was, I was closing the distance with her, but I, I simply just ran out of time. Um, at the time, I did not have an automatic opener on my parachute. Um, I saw soybean fields coming up in my peripheral. Um, when I did deploy, I, I, I opened like two line twists and then hit the ground. So I'm guessing I was probably around 500 or so feet. So, and obviously, you know, she was, she was dead when I rolled up to her and I was out in the middle of this field wondering if anybody, if these other, because at the time, early in the week, we were trying to get 300 people in this formation. And that doesn't even include the camera guys in the sky. So, you know, you got 300 something people and I'm sitting here with her body, you know, out in the middle of this soybean field, you know, while I was flying back to the drop zone. I'm like, I wonder if anyone even saw what just happened. So I literally just sat with her for like 30 minutes until some cars came out, you know, to the closest road and ran out. And yeah, I mean, it, it, that was a tough one. I mean, you know, I've been around fatalities and accidents and skydiving prior, but I mean, Christ, I mean, I literally chased her almost to my own death and I, I almost saved her, but I couldn't get to her. And that one, I, that one really, that one hurt pretty bad. I mean, it was just so surreal. It's when slow motion, it was just one of those things, you know, I guess when you get these critical moments in your life that everything slows down, um, that one I could play in my head vividly over and over because I just remember exactly how that thing unfolded up until the point that, you know, I landed and she was gone. Right. So, yeah, that, that, that definitely was a pivotal, pivotal point. Um, it did kind of the opposite of what you'd think. When I came off that tragedy, I wanted to jump more. I wanted to do more things. And I, I, I wanted to cram more life into my world, you know, meaning I don't, you know, any mundane thing I had to do, I had to do it unwillingly and i was really upset about doing it because i'm like life is short life is short you know i kind of had this fatalist attitude um which drove me to kind of do a lot of things and pack a lot of stuff you know into my life at the time like i was 
like I was gorging at a buffet or something like that. Um, but that's what drove me, I guess, in the early days of my skydiving and base jumping career, um, especially the base jumping part. Um, I just wanted to get as many objects under my belt and many crazy adventures and trips and things like that. And, you know, if people got hurt and killed in the process, that's just part of it. Um, it's just eventually, it's just an inevitable thing that's going to happen. And that, that was kind of my attitude at the time. So. There's quite a few people that come on the show and they've got that I almost saved them story, you know, and I, I mirror this in many, many conversations in my career. You know, we were taught if we do X, Y, and Z, you will save the person. And more often than not, that's not the case at all. You won't save the person no matter how well you do it. Um, and we're reminded of our mortality in, in these professions as well. And I think as we get to it with the, the, the uh, psilocybin um, journey that you went on, I've heard Marcus Capone talking about Ibogaine and so many other people. But I think one of the things that I hear that comes out of these psychedelic journeys is that kind of separation of, of body and spirit that a lot of these people experience. And I I wonder how many people especially in these professions, do suffer from ultimately a fear of their own mortality. And there is that, I've got to make my life meaningful. If I do all these things, if I serve people as a firefighter for 20 or 30 or 40 years, then you know I'll be okay. When the reality is, as you said, like, and, and we've seen this, any of us can go at any time. So yes, you want to live a rich and full life, but not to the point where it becomes an obsession. Yeah, I mean, I think that's kind of where, you know, I was younger at the time, still a little stupid to the what the world is all about. But yeah, I mean, you see people have, you know, nine to five jobs doing their, you know, same bullshit, you know, and not really doing anything with their lives, not traveling, not really experiencing things. And some of the stuff I was experiencing was just amazing, right? I mean, you can't even put it to words to people who've never done these type of things, who's never been in a you know, a world record skydive and felt the energy of everyone connecting free falling, not even be able to see the whole formation formation, but be able to feel it. Like there's legit an energy field that you can feel when that moment happens and things like that. And you can't even tell these stories to your friends. Like you tell it to them. They're like, Oh, that sounds cool. Right. But they don't have that, that, that depth of understanding of, of what you've gone through. So, yeah, I mean, I think I was just, you hit that switch of like, you think, okay, now there's a timer going. I really have to get this stuff in before something happens to me. And I think that's kind of where I went with that. Now, what about the the canine side? When in this kind of timeline did, did you start working with dogs and then kind of walk me through that side? Sure. I mean, well, I mean, I got my first dog, Luna. Uh, she was our rescue when I owned the CrossFit gym in Atlanta. And we didn't know what the hell we were doing. Um, she was a hot mess. So... I actually, we stumbled onto dog training through her um, just because of her behavioral problems and things like that. She was a rescue, um, but that led us to start our first, our pet dog training company, Koru Canine. Um, so we started that and I started training dogs, you know, dogs behaving badly and trying to turn them around and help people who are kind of in the same boat as me. You know, I got a dog that I didn't know what the hell to do with and she was a hot mess. Um, that being said, I eventually, you know, I got intrigued with when you look on the outside looking in, when you see police canines, you you honestly think that those are like the apex of dog training. I'm like, that is amazing. These dogs do amazing things. 
um, you know, they jump out of helicopters, they find drugs, they bite bad guys and all that type of stuff. So I was really enthralled and intrigued by it all until I started seeing more and more videos of dogs failing to do, deploy or when they're let go, not doing the job they're supposed to do. And a lot of those cases, they were, they were dying. They were getting killed in the process. So initially I started um, just to help the dogs. You know, now you're really thinking about the police officer behind that. I just didn't want, if you're going to put these dogs in a fight for their life, let them know that they're in a fight for their life, right? Don't send them into a building thinking they're going to go play tug with a three-time felon, not willing to, not willing to go back to prison and end up getting stuck in the head with a screwdriver. You know, while the tail's wagging and they think they're there for a game. I'm like, listen, they, this, is, this is serious. Like, these dogs need to be, understand that they're in a fight. And, you know, I can only equate that to if you have your best friend who's never been in a fight in his life and you just tell him to hop in there and just go for it and don't give him any instruction or anything behind it and he gets his ass kicked, well, what do you, what do you think was going to happen? It's the same thing with the police canines. I kept seeing it over and over, and I didn't realize how big of a problem it was until I kept pursuing this kind of bug in my ear that something needed to be done or something needed to change. And that's kind of what led to starting the HRD police canine um, because I found some like-minded people that, that kind of thought the way I did, that you know the way they're currently being used was not fair to the dogs, and it definitely wasn't effective. You know, so he chose, there's many aspects of dog training, especially with police canine. Um, but I chose to focus on the one that I was interested, in, which is them biting. You know, if you let them go as a use of force tool, I want them to actually get in a fight and I want them to win. So that's how it kind of started. So what were you seeing as far as some of the the poor techniques that were being used? And then what kind of, you know, what angle were you bringing to that training that was rectifying some of those problems? Sure. Um, well, first off, cops in general are not dog trainers. They don't understand fully how to train dogs, regardless of what we're talking about, whether it's obedience or the bite process or shaping them into, uh, you know, dogs are actually going to do that work on the street. Um, the other thing we noticed was their certification standards do not mimic what they're expected to do on the street. So if you look at any certifying body for these police canines, especially when it comes to apprehension, um, it's this vanilla picture that doesn't mimic what an actual police deployment looks like on the street, which is usually in a dark, shitty place in the middle of the night, which chaotic um, noise. There's all sorts of things going on that could affect whether that dog actually does its job. To me, this was simply treating canine units as a specialized unit, which they are. You know, any other specialized unit in, in the world, in the military, or even SWAT, for that matter, gets all the toys to support the budget and the training behind them to be able to deal with these things. Uh, we've got canine units around the country that are selling T-shirts to buy a fucking leash. You know, that's not right. You know, and, and they're expected to, you know, have this tier one training when they're given, you know, a, a Prius budget. <laughs> and it's, it just doesn't happen. So really all we did is introduce what scenario-based training into the picture to make things more chaotic, to make sure the dogs aren't going to be distracted by environmental factors, whether that's noise, um, distractions around what's going on, um, and make sure they actually do their job. Because when they don't do their job, 
they're at risk of getting hurt or killed or their handler or anybody around that scene. And I've seen multiple videos of a dog let go. And because the dog didn't engage, it caused a chain of effects that somebody got hurt or killed. And, and it happens over and over. And to me, that's avoidable. You know, it really just boils down to budgets and things like that. Because there are some amazing units around the country that have the budget and are well-supported and they do an amazing job. It's, it's, the, it's the ones that are kind of in these smaller departments typically are ones that are not getting that support. Um, what I kind of discovered is there's about a 60-20-20 rule. You know, you got 20% at the top of the pyramid that are shit hot, right? They, they're, they're dialed. They're training hard. They're doing scenario-based training. Um, they're well-supported, and they're doing the right things for the dogs. There's 60% somewhere in the middle that want to get to that 20%. They just have no idea what they're doing to get there. Um, they're not getting support. In some cases, they're literally training by themselves, which doesn't work. You have to have skilled decoys to show the dogs the pictures they need to see. And then you've got 20% at the bottom that literally got into it just to have the extra, the cool car, or the t-shirt or whatever, the extra pay. And I don't care about them. If, if anything, I'd rather them get washed out of the unit because it's doing a disservice to the dogs um, that are there to actually do a job. They need to know what they're doing. So my focus is that is in that upper tier um, and the, that 60% in the middle to help them get them the resources to get some good training in and take these tools that we show them in our seminars to go back to their units and hopefully implement them and be effective. Um, not lucky. You know, we don't want these guys to be lucky out there. If they drop that leash, they better know what that dog is going to do, not hope he's going to do a certain job. And I think that's really what we've been after since we started this. We've seen close to 700-ish just under 700 teams in three years all around the country. So we've seen the good, the bad, the ugly all over the place. And uh, the common theme is most of these handlers just want to get to this next level. They just don't know what that looks like or how to get there. And they're the ones we're trying to help. It reminds me of a really brilliant meme I saw. I think it was maybe a quote from a stand-up comedian, but it said, um, if you're running from a police dog, don't, don't crawl through a tunnel, weave through poles and go up a seesaw. They're trained for that. And I was like, kind of immediately flashed because, yeah, I mean, you see the same kind of call. I drive by them on the freeway, you know, where they train them. Of course, there's an agility element, you know, and there's, there's a confidence, confidence tool. But the same as the fire service, as you progress in, a lot of departments get into to box checking and they lose that you know, stress inoculation element, that that realism of training. And of course, you wanna, you got to teach them to walk before they can run. But as with a cage fighter, you want your worst day to be in the gym, not in the cage. And I think it's the same with us. It's the same with you know what you're talking about with the dogs. You can't do that every single day, but there's periodically got to be scenarios that you put them through that are at high stress. So as you mentioned, you've got a three striker that's not going to go back to prison and they, you know, they have the experience of that kind of energy level and that kind of threat. Yeah. I mean, elevated heart rate, uh, decision-making, you know, deploy, don't deploy scenarios, things like that. That's, that's what they're going to have to deal with. You know, they deal, you know, sitting one minute, they're sitting there eating a sandwich. Next thing you're on a code call, they're out there and then they're chasing some felon through a swarm. You know, and, and it can turn into a really nasty event really quickly. And that's what they need to be ready for. You know what I mean? This this is, you know, a lot of these guys have been training 364 days a year for one day a year, which is their certification. And like I mentioned, none, no certification standard in the country mimics what they're actually asked to do out there. And that's 
that's the big disconnect. And that's what we've been trying to change. And quite honestly, in the last three years, I've seen a big shift of people training um, very similar to what we're pushing in our seminars and I'm starting to see them using our stuff that we're putting out there, which is amazing. And that that's really ultimately what the goal has been all along is just to try to change this mentality and shift of we've always done this. You know, my trainer grew up in the eighties or the nineties, and this is what we did. Um, the world's changed, you know, it's a violent place and it's, it hasn't gotten any safer. That's for sure. And these dogs have to be able to do their jobs. So. Well, and when you hear the phrase less than lethal force as, as a as a medic, as a firefighter, you know, I've gone on a lot of, you know, calls where canine was deployed and it's usually either lower leg or, you know, arm, you know, the, the forearm, which is amazing compared to neck, groin or, you know, some of the worst places you could be bitten. So unlike a yep. Navy SEAL dog, you know, they they seem to be doing well at, you know, just incapacitating rather than killing. And so we look at obviously defending the dog and defending the officer, but ultimately even the person that's chasing, you know, very few people deserve to die. You know, let's be honest, you know, no matter what they've done, you know, hopefully they'll, they'll get to a point where they realize that that was a mistake and maybe there's a potential for them living a long and, you know, kind life post, you know, punitive action that's taken. So even for the person that's being pursued, God forbid, you know, it's a mistake even. You know, the less than lethal element of a dog is an, an absolutely essential tool that a law enforcement officer has. However, as you said, that's only the case if they're actually doing what they're supposed to do. And for example, may bite to stop someone drawing a gun out of panic and fear and killing an officer or themselves. Yeah. Um, yeah, you could have said that better. I mean, basically, a lot of times they pull a dog out just the barking, you know. You, you, I can tell you how many cops have told me that, you know, guys will come out and say, shoot me, shoot me, shoot me. Right. Um, but they bring the dog out. Then it's like, OK, I'm done. Because <laughs> I think they realize there's no there's no reasoning once that that leash is dropped. You know, at that point, you, you're in to win it. Uh, that being said, you know, we train those dogs not to bite those critical spots. You know, they're taught to bite where they can get a full, calm grip, um, basically the extremities. So your arms, and your legs are the primary targets. We don't have them target faces face and groin and things like that for obvious reasons like it wouldn't it would suck to be the decoy training that number one but number two um that's not what they're about i mean we're just the pain compliance is getting them to stop it ultimately saves a lot of lives right i mean they can easily be shot in some of these cases and but if a dog gets involved then you know they're going to recover from that bite the dog bite you know they're not going to get recover from getting shot in the face right so it's an amazing tool uh, when it's used correctly. Um, and there's some amazing teams out there and just watching them work is, is humbling. It's, it's really cool to see that bond and to see what they can, what can be done with a well-trained, well-supported canine team. So conversely, you mentioned about doing the training on, on the pet side as well. Same kind of question. What are some common mistakes you're seeing with, you know, dog owners and then what are some of the remedies you normally bring to those sure i mean just with the pet side the big thing you're going to find out is a lot of everyone thinks their dog needs to have doggy friends meaning you know you go to dog parks or they needs to meet every dog you come across on the street and that's simply not the case you know what you're typically building is an externally focused dog that listens to that seeks attention anywhere else but you and then they wonder why they're having problems. You know, some dogs are more forgiving than others. You know, if you got yourself a golden retriever versus a, uh, you know, a Rottweiler, you'll see the differences really quickly because um, dogs are pack animals, right? They, they respect 
their owners in most cases if you have the structure in place. So it's really just showing people how to live and communicate with their dogs correctly. Um, you know, so I've got a company to teach dogs not to bite people and a company to teach dogs to bite people. So I keep things balanced. Yeah, I've, I've found that in um, dog parks. Even I had Shih Tzus before I had German Shepherds because I was still in an apartment at that point and uh, grew up with German Shepherds, loved them, but I just wasn't in a place that was fair to have a large dog. Um, and even in that scenario with these little yappy type dogs that would, you know, struggle to breathe if they ran too fast, they were horrible in dog parks. And I, I had them trained. Like they would walk, people would stop the car because I'd have, there's three of them and they would walk side by side, leash, leash, leash in one hand, like in a straight line. They were amazing. But my God, in a dog park, if, if the dog was coming to try and take one of my male, um, Shih Tzu's balls, I mean, he would chase them around the park, no matter how big they were. So I've always wondered that. Like a dog park is a great place to exercise a dog, depending on the other dogs that it's in there with. Yeah, it's, we call it doggy fight club. And essentially it is, you know, it's good until it's not, you know, once it kicks off and then you see pack mentality kick in and it can get really ugly really fast. And there's plenty of videos out there. You can see a dog parks turning into, you know, just looks like a riot happening in there. <laughs> I almost punched a guy in the face, you know, the human fight club in a dog park because he started talking shit about my dog. So, you know, I'm sure there's probably videos of that too. <laughs> Whereas okay. the humans are kicking each other's ass. Yeah, I've had more altercations over my damn dogs, you know, with crazy people and other dog owners. Uh, yeah, <laughs> that's definitely a thing. <laughs> now, what about the therapeutic element? There's a lot of people on here, you know, that have been canine officers, canine, you know, handlers in, in the SEAL teams. Um, and there's always that beautiful connection with that dog from the healing side as well. With you having this journey, you know, from your childhood to the, the skydiving losses, did you start to see that bond as a healing element as you progress through? I did. I mean, it's just all you're doing is you're refining your ability to communicate with your dog. And the more you could refine that, the better relationship you have, the more cool things you could do with them, especially German Shepherds that are problem solvers, right? They, they want to do things for you, but you have to be clear. And I think that's the biggest thing that people struggle with. And when you know, the dog, it's not clear. They assume the dog doesn't understand or the dog's blowing them off or whatever, but that that's typically it's, it's the owner's fault. Um, they're just not being clear about what they're asking them to do. But when it does click, it's pretty amazing. I've done sport work with my, my other dog, um, Nero, and I've titled him, titled him in a sport called Precision, uh, Protection Sports Association, PSA. Um, and that was one of my proudest moments because I literally came from a point where I didn't know a damn thing about even having a dog, much less competing and titling a dog in a sport like that, that's, that closely mimics what canines are expected to do. Well, with that, I think one of the things that's very powerful um, is when you've got something to train for when you're in a profession that there is no on and off season. So for a perfect example, there's a, a competition coming up called the 343 Hero Challenge, which I've done for years. Um, it got shut down during COVID for a couple of years, but it's just a firefighter, kind of like CrossFit, but it's not, it's not you know the movements it's just that kind of intensity but it's also a fundraiser and it's an amazing community event but it gives me something to train for when i was still working it gave me something to train for and even now i've I've transitioned out um but it's something like a competition whether it's a shooting competition or you know a tactical canine competition that's a great tool to use to maintain your standard and, and knowledge share from other departments so for people listening how do they find that and how do they take part in that 
Well, typically, obviously, these these are sports that are geared towards uh, breeds that will typically do it. Uh, there are outliers, uh, but your typical dogs that do protection sports are going to be your Belgian Malinois, your German Shepherds, your Dutch Shepherds, and things like that. Every now and then, you'll get some pit bulls mixed in there, and some Rottweilers, and some really off breeds. But for the most part, they have to want to do the work um, because, again, you're kind of mimicking when they bite a man in a suit. He's supposedly the bad guy, right? So some dogs, like your Shih Tzus, would probably be more enthralled with sitting on the couch and just chilling out watching Animal Planet versus, you know, some big guy in a scary suit. They'd rather not mess with that and just hang out and be lazy. So they have to want to do it, for one. And number two, you have to train them over time to be able to, you know, endure the amount of pressure that's being put on them. So basically the amount of fights given to the younger dog is going to be a lot less than one that's seasoned and understands because the pictures you're showing the dog is he, he always wins. So when they win every time the pressure can increase. So they always know that the, the outcome at the end of it is they win. And that's, that's essentially what has to happen with any type of dog like that for them to learn to bite, you know, whether it's for real, for sport or whatever, but that's, that's, that's the case for most. So where can they find that online? So Because I'm sure there's people that are actually handlers in professions around the country that maybe would be interested in, in a excuse me, a competition side to it. Yeah, there's there's several types. I mean, there's there's other things called ring sports, like French ring and things like that. But uh, the one I chose to do is called PSA. It's just a protection sports association. I think it's PSA.org. Uh, I'd have to check. Um, but it's easy enough to find. If you just look up dog protection sports, it'll all pop up, I'm sure. Brilliant. All right. Well, then, so I, my um, Shih Tzus actually ended up going to a family member because I had a little boy and then one of them was actually aggressive towards the other. It was a father and son and and got to a point where I didn't trust him around my my little boy. And we had a, a couple who adopted all three of them and they took them on a farm and it was beautiful. But a few years later, um, I got divorced and then ultimately... I was able to be in, in a house where I could have a, a big dog. So now I've got two German Shepherds. The first one, I never figured out her pulling. She finally got a little bit older, got a, a muscle injury. And then when she finally healed from that, she doesn't pull anymore. But that's obviously not a good training technique. Now I have a nine-month-old puppy who is it's getting better. I've got her on a pinch collar, but I still haven't cracked that pulling elements so i know it's me not the dog so what are some of the the tools you offer to people when it comes to a dog who overall is behaving pretty well but is just will not take that slack out of the leash well the pitch collars work really well but they're promoted and fit properly but not only that you have to have pretty much every aspect of their life have some structure to it whether it's sitting before they get their food or holding a place command when somebody comes to the door um hundred percent. Any command that's given needs to be enforced. So if you give commands that aren't enforced, it becomes suggestions really quick. And when that happens, then everything goes out the window, including your heel command, which should be a command. It has a start and an end. If you tell them to heal, imagine them punching a clock. They should be walking along your side with zero leash pressure and not sniffing the ground, not eyeballing other dogs or people. But when you tell them, okay, they're free, they're, they're off the clock. They can go pee, poop, go greet somebody, do whatever. But when you put them back on the heel command, they're back on the clock again. And that has to be enforced. And a lot of people, it's, it's a tough concept to wrap their mind around that they have to make the change. The dog will do it, but they have to kind of treat it. This is the way you walk every single time, not some of the time, all the time. And then it's a clear picture for the dog. It's not an optional thing. 
Okay, yeah, guilty as charged. Like I'll do it. I'll try and hold it for a bit, and then I'll just give her a slack again. So yeah, I'll have to I'll have to look at my own uh, my own training. training. Yeah, no, 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 I'm fully aware of that. I've understood the whole time it's me, not them. I think, and like I said, aside from that, she's good and she's getting a little slack. But I I need to I need to punctuate, heal, and and like you said, okay. So now I have those commands. I'll I'll see if I can work with that. All right. Well, then, kind of moving forward, then staying on the canine path. Um, you had a dog called Nero who ultimately, you know, passed away. And I know that caused a kind of shift mentally for you. So talk to me about who Nero was and then walk me through that journey. Yeah, I, I guess he was my first purebred German Shepherd, you know, he came from Czech lines. And I got him to do these bite sports and things like that because I thought it was going to be really cool. And, you know, we went through a lot of shitty training in the beginning didn't know what the hell I was doing, caused a lot of damage that I had to undo. Um, but when I was able to get it all together and get him on the trial field and we started clicking, you know, I had this ridiculously amazing relationship with this dog. Um, he was, he was just, he was my ride or die dog. Right. Um, so just shy of his fifth birthday, he got a colonic torsion, um, which is essentially bloat, but just further down the intestinal tract. But it affected him kind of weird. You know, he just, when we brought him to the vet, they did some x-rays and they couldn't really see what was going on. And they kept talking about doing exploratory surgery. And, and for me, I didn't want to cut him open until we had some kind of destination. Like, what, what are we doing with this? So back and forth to the vet, you know, over the course of about a week or so until finally somebody figured out that something was going on further down his track um, and then got him into surgery. Um, and when he came out of surgery, he was successful. So, you know, kind of thought we were out of the woods and I was just like, phew, he dodged a bullet here. I almost lost my buddy, but then he declined again. Uh, and, you know, it just kept going. This happened over the course of about, I think it was 18 days from the time we first took him to the vet that something was a matter. And in that time he, you know, he got better, he got worse, he got surgery, came out of surgery, and then he declined again. So it was just up and down path. It wasn't just like he fell over dead one day. It was this myriad of emotions of he's going to live, he's going to die, he's going to live, he's going to die. And then finally, we brought him to Colorado State University, you know, where they got a veterinary college there and some of the best care you can find in the country. And they were doing everything they could do on their part but he just started to climb steadily at that point and you know losing weight and all that stuff and i didn't want my dog to turn into the science experiment and it crushed me you know when we decided to put him down it was it was definitely one of the worst days of my life for sure but unlike all these other i mean you would think after experiencing you know 34 or more human deaths in your life that you know, dog dying is just okay. Here's just another thing, right? No, I, I couldn't bounce back. I felt something was off. Uh, immediately, I knew something was wrong. I, you know, I just thought it was just deep depression. I didn't think or know anything about PTSD at the time. I just, just knew something wasn't right. Um, you know, and everybody's advice at that point is just snap out of it or think positive or, you know, the initial stuff that people want to lend to you or whatever. And none of that shit was working. At some point, you know, I started seeing counselor, counselors and things like that. And none of that was working either until finally, you know, I had one said, Hey, you probably have some PTSD <laughs> and basically gave me that diagnosis. And I'm like, okay, well, what do we do about it? 
So, you know, I, I did a lot of moving around after he died. So I tried a lot of different counselors and a lot of different modalities. You know, I tried EMDR, um, cognitive therapy, just you name it. You know, I, I tried all that stuff and not a damn thing worked. All it did is just hash up these shitty memories that, you know, didn't really want to talk about to begin with. But I didn't feel any relief from doing that. You know, I even asked one counselor at one point, you know, what does the end game look like for PTSD? I keep hearing treatments, but I've never heard of somebody, quote, cured of PTSD. What does that look like? And she looked at me and she said, I don't know. And I'm like, well, what the fuck am I doing here? You know, why am I paying you, tell you all these stories if you don't have any true end game here? You know, so. When I started getting into that stuff, this is where it made it actually worse for me because I'm thinking I'm here doing the work. You know, if I just plod through all these sessions and do what I'm supposed to be doing for PTSD, it'll, it'll subside at some point. But instead I just became more and more detached, more and more agitated, um, you know, hypervigilant about everything, just not a pleasant person to be around. Right. And I knew I had to do something. Um, yeah, it took to, it took to, I think it was August of last year before I even ventured or even entertained the fact of trying using psychedelics to address the problem. Um, started off with ketamine. Um, right away, I felt something. I'm like, oh, okay, I feel some kind of lightness to what's going on here, but I was never able to fully connect those dots as to how to u- utilize this as a training. I mean, actual therapeutic um, fix. And then I finally did a kind of a deeper journey, which was a combination of MDMA, ketamine, and uh, psilocybin, all administered kind of throughout the course of a long day. And I came out of that like I was I was floating on a cloud. Like I, I felt like a massive weight was lifted. And I was, I, and again, at this point, I didn't really know what to do with it. Um. I was referred to an integration coach, which I still didn't know what the hell that was was either. You know, I just assumed she was a counselor, but, you know, I've since found out, you know, integration coaches are people who know psychedelics and just help you kind of reassemble the pieces when you come out of it. Um, Essentially, think of a snow globe, like you shake that thing up, you know, you're breaking up all these negative patterns in your brain, but that has to settle somewhere. And that's really where the work comes in afterwards. And I found all this stuff, you know, just on my own because there's not any real guide that this is how you should fix or work through PTSD. What I did find out is those type of psychedelics, you know, they work and you feel kind of some reprieve from, you know, the crushing symptoms of PTSD for, you know, a couple months. But then you start to feel the old tendency start to creep back a little bit. And I kept hearing ayahuasca. And Ibogaine come up in conversations, a lot of stuff Joe Rogan talks about. Um, I was unsure about just the logistics of doing it, right? I mean, like everything I heard is you got to go out in the middle of the jungle in Peru somewhere. And, you know, I'm already, you know, I've got a healthy respect for that type of stuff. I was already afraid just to take it, much less worry about my safety when I'm, you know, out in the middle of the jungle somewhere. So I finally pulled the trigger in February. I'm like, listen, I'm, I'm tired of screwing around. I'm just going to see what this is all about, see if this is worth it. And I went to a place called uh, Rhythmia in Costa Rica. It's a medically licensed uh, treatment center. And it's extremely safe and secure. 
So it was exactly what I was looking for. You know, I didn't want some venture around my treatment journey. I just wanted to go deal with, you know, all these, the stuff I needed to process. I went down there and I had one of the most profound experiences of my life. And I'm sure you've heard this multiple times from multiple people about how they, they just can't put things into words. You know, I've got a little bit of that too. I mean, there, it's so overwhelming, just everything going on, that just the experience itself, um, you come back, you just feel different. And, and, and I'm like, this is it. You know, after, you know, it wasn't fun. I'll, I'll tell you that right out of the gate. And don't think of ayahuasca or I've never done ibogaine, but I, I would tell you those two are kind of like Marcus Capone said, the nuclear option. Um, those, they force you to deal with whatever's in there. So in your subconscious, whatever trauma is in there, it's coming up and you're going to deal with it whether you want to or not. They say the medicine gives you what you need, not what you want. Um, we did four ceremonies over the course of a week, along with some classes during the day and, and some ability to kind of, I guess, share your experiences and things like that. And you hear some of these other traumas that these other people are going through, which initially I didn't want to do, be around anybody like that. I wanted to just kind of deal with this on my own. But I will tell you the power of hearing some of these horrific things people have lived through was power that, that motivated me to, to really keep working on myself and, and try to help these other people. You know, I mean, I saw these other people struggling. I'm like, man, I really wish I could help this person. And I guess that's what, that was the catalyst of what made me want to start to turn this around and help these other people, I guess, like me. And this is what helped led me to start that Warriors Healing Network. Um, the one thing I do want to mention that, that I completely overlooked when I went down there, I, you know, I did all this research on ayahuasca itself and what it is and what to expect from it and all that type of stuff is I completely omitted the, the spiritual aspect. So when you go there, you have actual shamans, you know, who this is their entire life. You know, they've devoted their lives to this plant medicine and healing people. And you get around these ceremonies and, you know, they're doing these things called ikoros, which are basically sounds of the jungle. It's just these weird guttural sounds that they make that are really hypnotic that help draw out the effects of the plant when you're under, under the influence. But that gives you goosebumps. And, you know, you see all this stuff going around and then you just see and hear the sights and sounds and the things that go on during ceremony are just overwhelming. For, and everyone experiences something different, you know, for some people, you know, it's really, you know, entwined with a lot of crazy visuals and things like that. A lot of people, for me, it was mostly emotional. It just brought up thoughts and things that I haven't thought of for quite a while and trauma and all the while making me feel like it was okay. Like basically it's okay to let go of these traumas. And in fact, it made me happy and proud to have had all these people in my life, you know, that I've lost, you know, I, I valued their time with me, you know, two weeks prior to this, I lost another base jumping friend, a guy named Jimmy, who's been around since the beginning of time, as far as that sports concerned. And I thought this guy was bulletproof. I went to Angel Falls with him. I was friends with him and his wife and their dog, dog and he was just an amazing person. He was one of those people that you just want to be around, right? They radiate that positive energy. They always make you laugh. And no matter what the hell's going on, it, it was cool to be around him. 
And then when he died, that it, first of all, it cemented the fact that I had to do this because what I thought about what he would have wanted. And it wouldn't have wanted me to sit there crying and moping over his death. It was do something for yourself and make yourself happy. So I think it was kind of a blessing that it happened. And I'm not happy that it happened, but it, but it happened two weeks prior to me going to this retreat because it really confirmed and cemented the fact that I was doing the right thing. I had to deal with this stuff. And quite honestly, at when I went through the ceremonies, I, I thought of him quite often, but it was also positive. You know, it wasn't a, I'm, I'm sad. I, I'm super excited to, he was in my life and I was thankful and gracious that it happened. And yeah, I mean, just an immense feeling of change. And that's what I've been looking for all along. You know, I mean, I lost Nero in 2018, you know, and it took till February this year to rectify or actually get on a path that I think I'm actually truly in a place that I'm actually starting to heal myself. You know, I think there's more work to be done and I'm still working with an integration coach, but I finally found what I would think was the formula. I will tell you one other thing that I failed to mention earlier is I know three people personally who have gone to the VA and to get treatment for PTSD, who are given basically Xanax or some other kind of shit like that with undiagnosed TBIs. So they don't regularly check TBIs, you know, guys getting blown up overseas and things like that. So when they take that, it causes almost instant, uncharacteristic suicidal thoughts. And all three of them almost ate a gun. And I know three of these guys personally. So we keep hearing this 22 a day stuff, you know, some of the culpabilities here on the VA, square on the VA. And I know there's a lot of people trying to do good within the system. It's just overwhelmed and overrun. And, you know, we're really close to getting some of the stuff legalized for treatment, things like MDMA and things like that. But unfortunately, you know, I don't know how successful that'll be because I think that'll be overrun with a backlog of people trying to get that treatment the seconds it's released. So right now there's a lot of people out there. We've been at war for 20 years. Um, that need this help now. And we're one of the few organizations that opened it up past um, combat veterans, but we also want to help police officers because, you know, I've been around them for years now working with them and I see the shit they have to endure, whether it, I mean, help half of them, their departments won't support them. The public doesn't support them. The media shits all over them. So you talk and their instances of, you know, traumatic events, you know, sometimes exceed the vast majority of combat veterans out there. You know, these guys see this garbage every single day and they have to deal with it. So I wanted to make sure that those two groups of people were, were kind of looked after when we started this organization, because, you know, there are a lot of other, there's a few other organizations out there doing similar work. Um, but a lot of them are a little more narrow focus, mostly towards either, you know, special operations type um, candidates or things like that. But I wanted to reach out to a broader, I guess, spectrum of people that need this help because I know there's a lot of them out there and they're struggling just like I did. And I wanted to cut that corner. Well, I've had this you know, conversation, obviously, with a lot of people now, all the way from you know, Dr. Ben Sessa, who's in Bristol, back home in England, um, with his MDMA research under MAPS, all the way through to Marcus, which was you know, this week. Um, and, you know, the, the, the just frustrating, maddening irony that either law enforcement fire serve this very country 
and have to go overseas for the treatment or, you know, our military dies, lose limbs, you know, TBI for this country, and they have to go to another country to get the uh, the help they need. And so, you know, the 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 prohibition laws that we have are just so, you know, the, the found a, founded on absolute, you know, racism and, and job justification. And they, the fact they've lasted almost 100 years is, there's no better sign of, you know, the, the corruption in politics, to be honest. But there is a shift happening now and it's incredible but as you pointed to that's going to be a slow unrolling you know in some countries listening now that isn't the case you know i don't know if that's the case in the uk or australia at the moment um but so organizations like you know vets like um you know warriors healing network to connect these responders even if they're sending them over to costa rica to mexico i've got a firefighter friend and his wife are off to texas actually and they've managed to kind of find a way where they're doing it in a private home you know so um these are conversations that need to be he heard and then you hear about the healing element of psilocybin on TBIs and then you look at you know you've got military and, and law enforcement if you're a breacher or you know shooting firearms a lot where there's a concussive injury but then you look at fire dispatch law enforcement with the sleep deprivation you know the sleep deprivation mimics nerve damage that you get from TBIs so now you've got these compounding elements of two or one significant one so Everyone listening in these communities, if they fall under those umbrellas, even you know the, the the hospital setting, if you're a doctor or a nurse and you're working night shifts, this is you as well. So you know this plant medicine seems to be working with so many people, whether it's plants or frogs or you know wherever it's coming from. Um, whereas you hear these horror stories of most, not all, but most prescription meds that are having the the absolute adverse effect. So talk to me about what you offer. Like if, if someone is listening in their military or law enforcement, what can they do? How can they find help through your um, your nonprofit? Sure. I mean, ayahuasca is not going to cure everybody for all their worldly woes. You know, I mean, basically they have to qualify, number one, um, meaning there's a few. They have to be able to safely come off things like antidepressant medicine. And, you know, if they're an alcoholic, they they definitely have to be able to do that prior to going on any kind of retreat like this, because it's not a detox center, you know, it's not set up like that. My understanding is Ibogaine is probably a better path for those type of people anyway, because it has a little bit more, a little more properties that would address the addictive stuff that's going on. But if it's just trauma, they're trying to heal from ayahuasca is extremely powerful. If they have the right mindset, um, that being said, they have to want to make a change because the, all the medicine is going to do for them is help them process and then lay out a path for them to make change in their life. So in addition, if they wanted to come through our program, they would just apply. Um, we would find out what they can and can't pay for. And then we would basically fill in the cracks. I don't want it to be price prohibitive for them to be able to participate because quite honestly, we owe these combat veterans and police officers a lot more than what we give. Um, you think about the thousands of millions of dollars that are spent train in the formula that's so precise to train up a tier one operator we can get them to that amazing spot of of becoming a warrior out there for our country but we can't take that same level of effort to de-escalate that to put them back into society and not have them destroy their lives or or their families' lives or whatever and it's an absolute disaster so what we want to do is be able to have them do it properly 
So scent and setting is very important when you're dealing with any kind of psychedelics. We want to, number one, make sure it's a safe place. So we were personally vetting these centers that we're sending them. We want to make sure that they take the prep work prior seriously. So that there's kind of a dieta process that you want to cut certain things out of your body. So the medicine is a better chance to work properly. You'll go do you know, a week-long journey at one of these centers, and they typically do about four to five ceremonies in a week. Uh, but the way you come back, more importantly, is the integrative, integrative work, which we would include also. And that's the ability to kind of assemble, I guess, some of these new thought patterns and put them in a positive light. You know, because like I said, the snow globe, you shook it up with the medicine. You may have seen or heard some things while you were under the medicine's influence that kind of direct you to make these certain changes in your life. Uh, but you also need some people who've done this stuff before to help make sense of things and also to kind of, you know, call you out, I guess, you're starting to slip back into negative thought patterns, which really that's all PTSD is. You're stuck in that redlining fight zone um, that you can't pull yourself out of. And when you start going down that dark path, it just doesn't stop. So, you know, if we have to, we want to make sure these guys have that full board to be able to do all of that. My My, my thought process is let's go with that nuclear option first for these guys that really deserve it, need it. So they can come back and be in the fight for themselves, for their lives. So all I want to do is put them back in the driver's seat for the fight of their lives. And I think by doing these deep dives um, with those particular medicines, you'll, you'll get that, you know, there's no need to keep dabbling around stuff. If, if they've been looking for solutions for the last five years and nothing's worked, you know, and that's why I want to start with something with, like a, a retreat type thing that will really shake things loose and hopefully cause positive change. Because I can tell you what, at the end of those four ceremonies, I found myself walking around smiling, you know, which is something I never do. Um, I definitely felt different, lighter. And I started getting these thoughts of how do I help other people do this? And you have to know your audience a little bit too. I mean, you can't come, you know, every somebody has a bad day. Oh, you should be doing ayahuasca. It's, it doesn't, especially if you tell them what it's all about and all this, you can go trip off some jungle vine. People look at you like you have three heads. Um, but that's really what we, what you have to kind of think about when you're considering who you're talking to and, you know, have they tried all their modalities and are they equally frustrated? Are they basically where I was a few years ago? And that's kind of people we're looking for. Yeah. Well, I think that's, that's a really great, you know, way of putting it as well, because I had, um, you know, one, one guest on and their thing was this works for everyone. And I have to respectfully disagree. I think, you know, the, the same as fitness, same as nutrition, you know, different horses for different courses, as they say, you know, so what works for you may not work for me. And like right now, the only thing that I've really been battling is some fogginess, you know, so I don't have problem sleeping i don't have, feel like i have bouts of depression or anxiety definitely not hypervigilant probably the opposite i feel like my adrenal glands died a few years ago <laughs> but um but yeah so you know there's not that crisis element um and i you know i know that for example if i mean this sounds kind of weird but a cruise like take out all the day-to-day -day stressors you know cooking cleaning all that stuff disconnect preload a bunch of interviews cancel any interviews that are coming up and take a week to just totally unplug works incredibly well for me 
But as you touched on, there's people that have tried EMDR and equine therapy and some of these other things that work so well for some people, and it just didn't for them. And so maybe ibogaine, maybe ayahuasca, you know, maybe psilocybin or MDMA-led therapy, those are the things that will unlock that kind of, you know, chest that's buried deep below to, as you said, kind of, you know, dissipate the the flex of the snow globe and allow you to now organize it properly. So so I think it's important for people to hear that. Not It's not the right fit for everyone, but definitely if you've tried some of the the less invasive, I guess you'd say, things first and you're just not having success, don't despair. There are other options, but yes, it's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to take on uh, a, a journey physically and spiritually. Yeah, and I think, you know, not to poo-poo, you know, psilocybin and those other type of things because they, they're incredibly powerful. I, I'm just saying, in my experience, the top of the pyramid as far as your biggest punch is going to be those ayahuasca's and the ibogaine's of the world i would call those other ones kind of the supporting cast so if you're able to make some significant progress in your your mental health through a deep dive journey over a course of a week and come back and you can do things stateside like ketamine and mushrooms you know fairly easy here um and mdma and, and continue with your creative work you know you might be you might be good to go Right. I mean, this could just be your general maintenance for throughout life and keep you in a even keel and a happier place and be a better person. Um, that I mean, right. I mean, I'm not a scientist, you know, but I'm, I'm telling you just from my experience, what I've experienced in psychedelics. And, you know, I, I didn't take a damn thing like that, you know, growing up in college or high school or anything like that. This I was always terrified of this stuff. And I still am to some degree. It's it's definitely intimidating. Um, you definitely need to respect this stuff and, you know, what it's capable of, but, you know, when done properly, I, I think it's a very powerful tool, much better than what the standard modalities modalities that are being offered currently. So. Absolutely. Well, I'd love to switch some closing questions so I can, uh, you know, be mindful of your time. The first one I'd love to ask, is there a book that you love to recommend? It can be related to our discussion today or completely unrelated. <laughs> well, I actually just finished yours yesterday. The one more light. And I will tell you if if I we get people that are candidates in our program, I'm going to ask them to read this. Really, I, I want them to. I want this. They got something to read on their flight down there. I, I think it it really paints a picture that everyone, you know, regardless if you're a firefighter or not, you're going to res, a lot of this stuff's going to resonate with you, especially police officers. Um, so that would be some good recommended reading for fun. And I I wrote a, I read a book. Remember Nikki Six or Motley Crue? I do. Yes. He wrote a book called The Heroin Diaries. And in that, basically at the time, at the peak of their fame, when he was a heroin junkie in the 80s, he, uh, he wrote a lot of stuff down on pieces of paper and threw it in a box. And they found it years later when he sobered up. So apparently what he did is he assembled all this stuff and put what he wrote down. But then each chapter is built off what he wrote down. But then the backside of it is other people around him and what their experiences of what really happened. So you see this downward spiral, and then you also see <laughs> what he thought was happening around him, and then you hear from other people what was actually happening. And it's pretty disturbing, but entertaining at the same time. So that's Heroin Diaries. That was a good book. I have not had that recommended in over 600 episodes, but that does sound like an incredibly powerful you know, theme for a book. So I'm going to have to put that on my list. So thank you. Yeah. All right. What about a movie and or documentary that you love? Uh, well, 
Sicario, the first Sicario was freaking amazing. Um, as far as the documentary is concerned, I, I will throw this one out. It's called Heal. It was on Netflix. That was probably the first time I connected the dots between of why you need to do things like mindfulness practices and meditation or yoga or things like that. What is it? What's what physiologically is happening in your body when you do those things? Because I think this is where the big disconnect is. You know, you get a bunch of these alphas, you know, in the military or police or whatever, and they see some yoga guy, you know, and you know, tie dye shirt telling him he should breathe and do all this stuff. And you're like, oh, that's cool. But why, you know, why am I doing this? That did a really good, that documentary did a really good job of explaining, I guess, what the chemicals that are released in your body when you're doing those types of activities that help fight chronic disease and a lot of garbage that's going on in our country. You know, obviously we have, we're built around sick care. Uh, you know, we throw pills at everything, but we don't go for root causes and you know, a lot of those stuff can be addressed through some simple just changes in lifestyle. And, you know, it's starting to pop up in some of the departments around the country that they have yoga available, you know, and they're paid during their shift to do yoga and things like that. I think if people understood why they were doing it, it would help a little bit more. And that's the first time I saw anything that kind of really explained that in a, in a positive light and that in terms that it made sense to me. So I just stumbled onto that by accident, just surfing Netflix, and it's called Heal. Brilliant. Thank you so much. Now, it sounds incredible. I think understanding the why is absolutely the nucleus of any change. Um, yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, then, next question. Is there a person you'd recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military, and associated professions of the world? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I would highly recommend my integration coach, Christina Muncy. She um, she could speak more, I guess, on the psychedelic side, on what to expect. But more importantly, what does integration look like? What does it do for you? What is the why is prep work so important to do something like an ayahuasca journey or something like that? Um, you know, you don't have to be using psychedelics to use it, things like an integration coach. I think somebody who is who can kind of help change your framework and the way you think about your day-to-day -day stressors on a regular basis just keeps you a little bit more grounded. And then when you have those questions, you've got somebody right there to kind of help make that connection between, you know, this big world of everyone's tough guys and tough women in uniform to, you know, becoming an empathetic, loving human. You know, how, how do you do that and not, you know, appear weak or something like that, which is the big stigma within these communities, which probably keeps them away from that in the first place. You know, and they, they turn to the things like the bottle and stuff like that. So quite honestly, I think she would be a very good guest to kind of balance things out. Cause a lot of people have talked about psychedelics themselves or kind of glossed over their personal experiences. But I think somebody with a little more depth and understanding on the healing process behind them would you know, put a little more light in this, this potential fix or help uh, people who are out there thinking about going down this road for PTSD treatment. Absolutely. No, I, you're right. I haven't had that perspective yet. So uh, if you can help me make the connection, that'd be amazing. Absolutely. Well, thank you. All right. Well, then the last question before we make sure everyone knows where to find you on, on your various sites, what do you do to decompress? What do I do to decompress? Yes, sir. Oh, <laughs> well, I shoot a lot of guns. 
Because I live in free America, in South Carolina. <laughs> we can have what we want. I happen to have a 50 caliber rifle, which is my favorite toy. Um, and I like a lot of heavy metal and hardcore concerts. So if you see a Lamb of God concert or anything like that, you, I'll be there for sure. Brilliant. That's my outlook. <laughs> Brilliant. All right. Yeah, we, there's a... Um, a concert welcome to rockville that we had it used to be in jacksonville i hope it goes back because it's been in daytona the last couple of years and it's not the same but i think i want to say they go up to you as well but they've they've got one in um oh my goodness i'm forgetting the name of it now but it's a uh, an old prison in ohio the reformatory that they shot um shawshank in so i don't think it's actually oh, inside yeah. but it's right on the grounds uh, but that one's called incarceration but lamb of god are at that that group of concerts all the time well for sure i, might, I was lucky enough that our one of our trainers from my company, Coral Canine, trained the uh, lead guitar player for Lamb of God's dog. <laughs> so I've met him a few times, hung out with him a few times. They've become good friends. So it's kind of a neat experience. Brilliant. Yeah, it's amazing this network that you create by doing one thing that leads you to all these other amazing people. Absolutely. All right. Well, then, people listening, where can they find your canine training, your pet training, and then obviously Warriors Healing Network as well? Sure. Um, well, Pet dog training, you know, we're in 13 different states. Uh, KoruK9.com. It's K-O-R-U-K and the number nine.com. And for the police training, that's HRDPoliceK9.com. And that's uh, high-risk deployment canine. That's what it stands for. And then uh, Warriors Healing Network is just the WarriorsHealingNetwork.org. And we're on Instagram. And we've only been out for about a month. So we are actually really brand new. So we really appreciate the opportunity to get it out there. And if you know people that need this help or can help further our mission or donate or whatever, I just need to send them our way. On Instagram, we're Warriors Healing Network 2022. Brilliant. Well, yeah, I mean, I guess the one good thing about being you is that hopefully there are places. So if people listening and really wanted to explore this area, now is the time. Yeah brilliant absolutely well ray i just want to say thank you um you know firstly like so many people you know you have this good experience after you know a, a, a experience of depression um and you find something that works and now you want to share it with the world you want to help other people get to it so thank you so much for telling your story today and thank you so much for being so generous with your time yep thank you very much i appreciate it